uh, we want you to look with me tonight in the book of Matthew. We're going to be talking about Matthew chapters 1 and 2 tonight and just kind of give you a synopsis of these two chapters, if I may. Uh, trying to do a little teaching tonight about something that we normally don't hear, something that really we're not really all that much interested in from time to time, and that's genealogy. Uh, do you like studying about genealogy? Sometimes we'd rather watch paint dry uh, than to do that. But I want to talk about the birth of our King tonight, and that's the Lord and Savior, uh, Jesus Christ. Rome was in power. Uh, the politics and the government of that day all focused upon Rome. The Roman war machine was going through and plowing people down that got in their way. The religion of that hour was Judaism. Uh, the Jews uh, were Orthodox Jews. They went into the law of Moses. They had loved it. Uh, but yet there was also pagan worship going on at the same time. Uh, Caesar worship was something that was on the rise. As a matter of fact, many of the Romans thought that the Jewish people were, were atheists because they would not worship the Caesars of that day. But among the Jews, you had four, basically four different types of belief. You had the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Zealots, and the Essens. And those people, uh, they all had four different beliefs, and yet they were some arguing among themselves. But Rome even controlled the Jewish Sanhedrin. Uh, Rome was able to control the Judaism to a degree, and yet there were factions among the Jews. The language of that day was Greek. Uh, that was the language of trade. They spoke Aramaic, they spoke Hebrew, but the language of the trade uh, was that of the Hebrew language. We also know that during that same time, Hellenization took place throughout the culture, and that was the spread of Greek culture uh, that spread throughout all of Palestine, throughout all of Jerusalem, and throughout all of those particular areas. And then there was an angel that came to a little old virgin Jewish girl and said that she was going to bring forth a child and that child, uh, when he was born by the name of Jesus, our Savior, when Jesus Christ was born, he rocked the Roman world. And when he came into a man, he rocked the entire world. And yet as that little baby grew up to a teenager, and a teenager grew up into a man, and he began a ministry, he said he was the king. And yet there, there, at that time, there was no king uh, but Herod. But yet when he said, I'm going to be the king, the question is, uh, truthfully this evening, uh, does he have any proof of kingship? Uh, is there any credentials that proves uh, that he is a king? We got that on the screen tonight, brother? Can't find it? Greg's supposed to load it, so don't know. Anyway, um, it's going to be boring now. You can't follow me. But anyway, oh, you found it finally. It's Acts 12. I don't know where's that at. Anyway, is there, is there any proof of his kingship? Is there any way that anybody else validate the fact uh, that he himself uh, was a king. Well, Matthew provides many things about the birth of this king and many things about the credentials to prove uh, that indeed he was the king as well. He gives the answers about the kingship of Jesus Christ the Lord. First of all, let's look at the heredity of the king. That's in Matthew chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 25. Uh, the heredity of the king. Uh, since royalty demands heredity, uh, it's important to establish, did Jesus Christ uh, have a th a a access or have any type uh, of, of uh, rights uh, to the throne of David itself? Uh, with that being said, uh, Matthew gives the heredity of Jesus from both a human side, Matthew uh, chapter uh, uh, 1, uh, verses 17, uh, 1 through 17, and also from the divine side, uh, verses 18 uh, through verse 25. 
Now let's look at the human heredity of Jesus Christ. Genealogies were extremely important to the Jews. For without the genealogies, there is no way they could, trans, they, they could trace back their tribal ancestry or what family they really belonged to. Without knowing the genealogy, there was no way that they would be able to enjoy an inheritance that was left to them uh, by a loved one as well. Anyone claiming to be the son of David had to be able to prove that indeed they were the son of David. From reading the Bible, we see that Matthew gives the lineage or the family tree of Jesus Christ from his foster father, Joseph. And Luke gives us the family tree lineage from his mother, Mary, okay? Uh, that's the way it was. Now, when you read the Bible, most of us don't like genealogies. Uh, so, so many names, uh, so many names that are hard to pronounce. So-and-so begat so-and-so, and so-and-so begat so-and-so. And we, I mean, we just usually gloss over that, and we just go on to something more interesting. Let's just be honest about it. We do. However, the names are extremely important in those genealogies, because they are listed for us in the Word of God. They show us the part of Jesus in their history, and all Jewish history also prepared the way for the coming of the Messiah, and all the genealogy and all the history proves that Jesus Christ was the one uh, that fulfilled all of those prophecies. God in His wisdom he ruled and he overruled many times to make sure that our Savior and his son had grand entrance into this world. Now, the genealogy also illustrates the amazing grace of the Almighty God. It's very unusual to find the name of women. Ah, oh, glory to God. It's <laughs> Thank you. Uh, it, it, it's most unusual to find the names of women uh, in a genealogy. Most of the genealogies came from the father's side. But when you read about the genealogy of Jesus, you'll find there that there were four Old Testament women that were in the genealogy of Jesus Christ himself. Uh, we know it was Tamar, uh, Rahab, Ruth, and also Bathsheba, uh, who was the wife of Uriah. Upon further study, you will notice that there were several names that Matthew omitted from the genealogy. Why was that important? Well, I personally believe there were many reasons for that. For instance, he did this to give a systematic summary of three periods of Israel's history, each with 14 generations. Notice also the numerical value of the Hebrew name uh, letters for David also equals 14. So Dave, or Matthew wrote this, in my opinion, in order that when the people were memorizing, they would be able to have a good memory aid in 14s, 14s, and 14s, uh, being able to remember the names of all those uh, that were there in the genealogy. Now, there are many, many Jewish people that they can be traced back to the King David himself. But it takes more than a human pedigree uh, for the Messiah just to have a human pedigree. There must be a divine heritage to it, a divine lineage to it as well. So look at divine lineage in Matthew 1, verses 18 through 25. Matthew makes it clear that Jesus' birth was different from any other Jewish baby's birth during that time. Matthew pointed out that Joseph did not beget Jesus. Notice that. He did not beget Jesus. Joseph was the husband of Mary in whom Jesus Christ, who was called Christ, was born. 
All throughout, so-and-so beget, so-and-so beget, so-and-so beget. When you come to Joseph, Joseph did not beget him. Why? He was not his earthly father. Jesus Christ was the offspring, was the son of Mary himself. This is why we what we call the doctrine of the miraculous conception or the doctrine of the virgin birth itself. Every child that's born is a unique creature, is a special creature. But Jesus being eternal God, he existed before Mary. He existed before Joseph. He existed before any of his history, uh, any of his ancestry. What did Jesus himself say? Jesus said, verily, verily, I send to you, before Abraham was, I am. So when you look at the divine heritage, heritage of Jesus, he existed before Mary, he existed before Joseph, he existed before Abraham, he existed before Moses, he existed before Adam. Why? Because he was very God. So we see the, 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 the divine heredity here. Now it was necessary for him to enter the world through an earthly mother, but not with an earthly father. Had he been born with an earthly father, he would blood would have been tainted. He would have been sinful. He would have been full of rebellion and we would not have had a savior. But because he did not have an earthly father, he had an earthly mother, but he had the Holy Spirit that overshadowed the earthly mother, mother and therefore the blood that he had coursing through his veins was holy blood and pure blood and untainted blood. Thank God for that. Because without the shedding of nasty blood, we'd still be in our sin. But because of his blood was pure. Praise God for that. We have a Savior. So the miracle of the Holy Spirit, Jesus was conceived in the womb of a virgin by the name of Mary. And when he was born, rolling through his veins, thank God, was pure, untainted, sinless blood. Now, many theologians and many skeptics have raised the question through the years that Mary was not a virgin. They try to tell us Matthew 1.23 should be translated as a young woman. But the word is translated virgin. It does not mean young woman in this context. It simply means a virgin. Mary was a woman that had never had sexual intercourse with a man before the birth of Jesus Christ the Lord. She was a virgin. If Jesus had an earthly father, then we would have no savior, like I said, because his blood would be spoiled and sinful. But Mary and Joseph, they belonged to the house of David. Now, again, the Old Testament prophecies, think about it. The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. The Old Testament prophecies indicate that the Messiah would be born of a woman, of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Judah, and of the family of David. Now, think about that. You read about that in Genesis, and Genesis, and Genesis, and 2 Samuel. What are the odds of one individual fulfilling all four of those particular prophecies? But not only did he, his birth fulfill those prophecies, it filled every one of the Old Testament prophecies that would call him to be the Messiah. Now, I don't know, I'm not much of a statistician, but I have read through the years, I'm going to give you a quick illustration. My wife bought me this ring some time ago. <laughs> they could have called me Ringo Starr if I'd not have been a Christian because I love rings. I don't know why. I always have since a kid. But if I were to take this ring and get in that airplane somewhere between Maine and Miami, Florida, and I were to fly out in the Atlantic Ocean somewhere 
five miles, two miles, 20 miles, 30 miles, or 50, and drop this ring. Now say, Brother Charlie, go find that ring for me. Where would he take off from? Myrtle Beach, South Carolina? Vero Beach, Florida? Kitty Buckport, Maine? Where would, he, where would you take off? He, how you know? But if Charlie could find that ring in the Atlantic Ocean on the first try, that's almost equal the odds, I'm told, of Jesus Christ fulfilling every one of the prophecies of the Old Testament. Which tells me Jesus is not just something that happened. Before the foundation of the world, God had a plan. And when God gives his word, you can take it to the bank. When God gives his word, you can believe it. Can you imagine when Isaiah wrote, a virgin going to bring forth a child? He's scratching it. Oh, how's that going to happen? It did miraculously through the power of the Holy Spirit. So may we not stumble over God's words. But when we take the word of God at heart, when you find the Old Testament scriptures that prophesied his first coming and nailed it again and again and again and again, we had better take to heed the prophecies concerning his second coming. Because the same book that talked about the first one, and he did, is the same book that tells about the second one, and he will. Thank God for that tonight. Well, that being said, all this is important. Yet to us it appears born, but without this truth of the genealogy of Jesus Christ having a divine side, we would not have a Savior tonight. Now, now Matthew traces the line of Jesus through Solomon, while Luke traces the lineage of Jesus through Nathan, one of, Solomon, one of David's other sons. Now, with that being said, it's worth noting that Jesus Christ is the only Jew who's alive that can actually prove his claims to the throne of David. You know why? Because when Rome destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD, all the history books were burned up. But we have it right here in this book Amen. that Jesus Christ is the rightful throne humanity-wise and divine-wise, to sit upon the throne of David and rule and reign forever and ever and ever. Now, the Bible says that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was espoused to Joseph before they came together and she was found with child. Now, the word espoused means they were basically betrothed. They were engaged. When couples were engaged, they went through different, three, three different periods before they got married. One of them was the betrothal or the espousal. And that meant they were called husband and wife, but they had not consummated the marriage, nor did they live together. Only after the engagement proper was over would they be able to marry and consummate the marriage. But when Jesus Christ was born, they were betrothed to each other. They were in an engagement period. And yet we know that during that time, had she was pregnant that way, had it not been the Holy Spirit, she would have been committing adultery. And the law says they were to stone her to death. But, and I believe with all my heart that Joseph was ready to divorce her. The Bible said in all four Gospels, he was ready to divorce her. Can you imagine what that, that story must have been like that night? I'm sure that moms and dads and husbands and wives have heard all types of cockamamie stories throughout the years about an unwanted or an unprepared pregnancy. But could you imagine for a moment that Mary invites Joseph over to her mom and dad's house and they're there and they go out for a walk that night after they drink their coffee and for a stroll. She said, Joseph, I have something to tell you. Well, what is it, honey? Um, I don't know how to put this in words. Well, 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 you can talk to me about anything. We're going to get married. W what is it? Joseph, sit down right here on this rock. Um, I'm pregnant. <gasps> I bet he sucked every bit of the air right out of that barnyard. 
And the first thing that he probably said, how could you and who were you with? Now, what do you think Mary said? Now, Joseph, hang on. An angel came to me. How many of you going to believe that? Come on, how many of you would believe that? An angel came to me and said, I have been favored of the Lord and that the Holy Spirit was going to overshadow me and in my womb was going to be formed God in the flesh and I would give birth to him. And Joseph going, he must have believed it because he wanted to divorce her in all four gospels. He didn't believe her. Would you? Would you have? I don't think I would have. Why, pastor, you had the word of God. That's what I'm saying, friend. We see this in hindsight. But if we live this thing out in living color as they did, what would you do if you'd been in Joseph's shoes? It took an angel or a dream for the Lord to show him that this thing is of God. And only then he came and said, Mary, I believe you, honey. I mean, the Lord got hold of my heart the same way. I believe you. But yet we find here that God said the Holy Spirit would do it. Again, this fulfilled the Old Testament scripture in Isaiah 7:14. Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Before we move on, let me point out the fact that there are three names that are given to God's son. The name Jesus means Savior, and it comes from the, the Hebrew name Joshua, which means Jehovah is salvation. There were many Jewish boys that were called Joseph, or, uh, Joshua. We understand that. We saw that as Joshua in the Old Testament, Joshua the high priest. And yet today we also understand the Greek name uh, is Jesus. Uh, in some of the Hispanic community, we find the name of people of Jesus even to this day. Jesus, I think they go by. The name Christ means anointed. It's the Greek equivalent to the word Messiah. So Jesus is his earthly name. Christ is his official title. But Emmanuel is who he is. God with us. Praise God. Now, the king was a Jewish male who was also divine son of God. That was his credentials. That was his calling card. This is who I am. I can say I am king. Because I have an earthly heredity and I have a divine heredity. My lineage comes both from Abraham and David. And my lineage comes from God himself because I am God. Now with that being said, did anybody else acknowledge his kingship? Yes, the Magi from the east. Look at the homage of the king in Matthew chapter 2 verses 1 through 12. We know very little about these men. We refer to them as the wise men, or uh, they'd be hard to find those today, I guess, but if we had them. The word translated wise men, magi, refers to a group of scholars that studied the stars. Uh, in reality, uh, the title connects them with magic. They were probably more like astrologers than they were astronomers. When the Bible mentions them as being astronomers or gazers of the stars, that does not mean that God condones or that God approves of magic or astrology or any of those things. To me, it simply means that God was able to speak to these Gentile men and they were able to figure out that the star meant that there was a king to be born. 
So their presence in the Bible, again, is not an endorsement of astrology or any type of magic mayhem as well. God gave them a special sign that acknowledged the fact that the birth of a Savior uh, was taking place. The star led them to Jerusalem. Think about that. The star led them to Jerusalem where God's word was told to them that the king was to be born in Bethlehem. With that being said, they eventually met the king. They worshiped him. Uh, they brought with him gifts of gold and myrrh and frankincense, gift for a king. Uh, gold was for the king, uh, frankincense for a priest. And we know that myrrh was used in the anointing of a dead body. And Jesus could use all three of those because he was both king, priest, and he was our sacrifice upon the cross. Now, we don't know a whole lot about these magi except they brought those gifts. And some concluded that these kings came from the Orient, uh, but we can't be certain how many that there were. Uh, because they brought these three gifts, many have assumed that there are only three kings that came. We don't know. But one thing is for sure, that when the caravan arrived in Jerusalem, there was enough of them to trouble the entire city. So whether it was three of them or 30, we don't know. But when they showed up in Jerusalem, they brought trouble to the whole city. Now, these men were Gentiles. Why is that important? I think it's important because Jesus Christ did not come just for the Jew only. He came for the salvation of the entire world. And when he, these, these magi from the east came, uh, to me that was a great sign to let me know Jesus is not just a Jewish God. He's God for the world. For God so loved the Jew, yes. For God so loved the world. He gave his only begotten son. And I think we can see that here. The Magi were seeking the king. But notice, if you will, Herod was afraid of the king. And he wanted to destroy the king and kill him equally uh, as well. Now, this was Herod the Great, called king by the Roman Senate because of the influence upon him by Mark Anthony himself. Notice, if you will, Herod was a cruel and a crafty man. We understand that he was a man that uh, he, he simply uh, didn't even like his family at times. He killed uh, his wife. He killed his two brothers uh, simply because uh, he thought they were trying to bring treason against him. Uh, he was a ruthless man, an evil man, satisfying his own evil desires. And yet he was married nine times. And he was married many times like that just to fulfill his own lust. But every time it would advance him uh, in his political career uh, along the way. Now, why did Herod uh, want to kill Jesus? Well, because he wanted to have the name King of Jews for himself. Now, to me, this is interesting. This is another reason uh, why I believe that uh, he was the way he was. Herod was not a full-blooded Jew. He was actually an Idumean, which was a descendant of Esau itself. Do you remember that Esau and Jacob were always neck to neck with each other? This is what you almost have again. You have a, a, a member of Esau's clan and Jesus, here they go. The same way that Esau and Jacob were, Jesus and Herod were as well. It's a picture of them struggling. Even before the boys were born, remember that? Before they were born, the Bible said they want them pulled on the heel while they're in the womb. So it's a spiritual versus the carnal. It's the worldly versus the godly, if you will. Now notice also the Magi were seeking the king. Herod was opposing the king. And the Jewish priests were ignoring the king. There's always been those kind of positions around King Jesus, even to this day. There'll be those that seek him, some that resist him, and some that ignore him. You find that in Christianity. You find that I mean, there are Christians that ignore Jesus. There are Christians that resist Jesus. And the world's the same way. Around the cross, you had those that ignored him. 
those that resisted him and those that would try to embrace him. The same way it's going to be uh, throughout all of history. I hope to be in the ones that's not ignoring him. I hope to be the ones that's not opposing him. I want to be the one that's seeking him. And I pray that we'll seek him and find him with everything that we have. Notice, if you will, also, the priest of that hour, they could point the wise men to where Jesus was at by using the scripture, but they themselves would not take the time to go see him for themselves. There's a lot of people who can tell you about the things of God, but some of those same people don't want the things of God. And these priests were pointing the, these magi to where, where Christ was at, but they themselves did not go, but yet they were fulfilling the scripture. The Bible said in Micah 5, 2, But thou, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth unto me, unto me that is to be ruler of Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. Once again, they quoted Micah 5, 2, told the, the Magi where to go, but they themselves would not go. The Gentiles sought after him and found him, but the Jews refused to do anything. Jesus said, I came to my own, and my own received me not. Now, when you look back at the scripture closely, you notice the miraculous star did not always shine. When these wise men started on the journey, the star shined. But somewhere in that journey, that star went out. How do we know that? Because it did not lead them to where the child was. It led them to Jerusalem. They went to Jerusalem and asked the priest, and the priest pointed them to where he was at now. As they started toward Bethlehem, they saw the star appear again, and it led them to the place where Jesus was. By now, Joseph and Mary had moved away from Bethlehem. And now, the trans, the, the, this traditional manger scene where we have the shepherds and the wise men together, that's bogus. It didn't happen that way. It happened at separate times. Let's move on. Matthew also cites for us a second fulfilled prophecy to prove that Jesus Christ indeed is the king. He, how he was born was another prophecy, and where he was born was fulfilling that prophecy, and that was Bethlehem. And Bethlehem means the house of bread, and that is the bread of life. Jesus Christ had come down to heaven to dwell where we're at. Bethlehem in the Old Testament was associated with David, and David was a type of Christ's suffering uh, when he came to earth as well. Let's look at hostility now toward the king. We've talked about uh, the hereditary king. Uh, the homage of the king. Let's look at the hostility of the king in chapter 2, verses 13 through 18 quickly. A person many times is identified not only by his friends, but also by the enemies as well. Herod pretended that he wanted to worship Jesus Christ, this newborn king, but in reality, he wanted to destroy Jesus Christ. God warned Joseph to take Mary and the child and flee into Egypt. Why is that important? There were many Jews in Egypt at that time. And the gifts of gold, myrrh, and frankincense that the wise men brought to Mary and Joseph in honor of Christ would give them enough ample money to help them join the caravan, travel into Egypt, and have enough money there to sustain themselves while they were there in Egypt itself. With that being said, there was also another prophecy fulfilled, and that is in Hosea 11.1. 1, I called my son out of Egypt. How in the world did he get in Egypt? Matthew tells us that Joseph took him there because they were afraid Herod was going to kill. It's obvious that Herod was full of pride. He could not allow anyone to get the best of him. Herod probably thought the wise men were wise guys. They tricked him. He hated to be tricked. He hated to be duped. Tell us, he said. Tell, Herod said, tell me where the king is so I can come and worship myself. No, that was a lie from the pit of hell. 
He wanted to know where Jesus Christ was so he could come and kill him at that particular time. I have no idea how many babies were killed in Jerusalem at that time, Bethlehem area. Traditionally, in history that I've studied, said there were not all that many babies in that area uh, during uh, that particular time, two years and under, male boys. But even one child was one too many. And yet Herod killed them. Notice, if you will, Satan is a thief, a killer, and a liar. And Herod was a thief, a killer, and a liar. He lied to the wise men and he murdered the babies. And even that own crime, a crime he committed, was also another fulfillment of prophecy. In Jeremiah 31, 15, Thus saith the Lord, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel, weeping for her children, refused to be comforted for her children because they were not. In order for us to understand this scripture, would you allow me to walk you through a little history lesson that I personally think is important to understand what he's saying. The first mention of Bethlehem, to my knowledge in the Bible, is in connection with the death of Jacob's favored wife, Rachel. Rachel died giving birth to a son whom she named Benoah, son of my sorrow. Jacob named, renamed his son Benjamin, son of my right hand. Remember that, son of my sorrow, son of my right hand. Notice also, if you will, both of the names relate to Jesus Christ because he was a man associated with what? Sorrow and, and acquainted with grief. But he's also the son of God who has been seated at the right hand of God the Father. Do you see that correlation? So Jacob built a memorial to mark Rachel's grave near the city of Bethlehem itself. Jeremiah's prophecy was about 600 years before Jesus Christ was ever born. Some of the captives were taken to Ramah and Benjamin uh, near Jerusalem. And this reminded Jeremiah of Jacob's sorrow where Rachel died. However, it's now Rachel who is weeping. Why? Because the sons that she has birthed, they now are being carried into captivity. She's weeping because they've been carried into captivity. And she almost says, I've gave my life uh, to bear a son. And now my descendants, they are no more. They've been carried away into captivity, far away from where they're supposed to be. So Jacob saw Bethlehem as a place of death. But the birth of Jesus Christ made it a place of life. It made it a place of life. May I remind you, because of his coming, there was a spiritual deliverance for Israel when Jesus came. And in the future, the establishment of David's throne will be there. And the kingdom, there'll be no more sorrow. There'll be no more death. And there'll be no more dying. And you know what? There's a scripture yet to be filled. And that's where the Jews around the world will be gathered back into the nation of Israel itself. And during the millennial reign, there'll be peace upon this earth. Jesus, uh, rightfully set upon the throne of David, will rule this world with a rod of iron. There'll be no communism. There'll be no Marxism. There'll be no dictatorship. There'll be no democracy. There will be a theocracy where the king of all kings will sit upon that throne and he will rule and reign up this world. And the, government of the, uh, the governments of the world will rest upon his shoulders. That will be fulfilled in the future. Yet very few people today think of Bethlehem as a place of death, as did Rachel. They think of Bethlehem today as a place of life where Jesus Christ was born. Praise God for that. Let me finish up talking about the humility of the king. 
Herod died around 4 B.C., which means that Jesus was born somewhere between 6 and 5 B.C. It's impossible to notice the parallel between Matthew 2.20 and Exodus 4.19, the call of Moses. As God's son, Jesus was in Egypt called back in to Israel. Moses was outside of Egypt and yet hiding for his life, but he was called to return to Egypt. In both cases, God's program of redemption involved obedience on Christ's part and obedience on the part of Moses. It took courage for Joseph to leave his family and to go and leave Egypt, but it took courage for Moses to take his family and go into Egypt. You follow the parallel. When Herod died, Joseph took his family and went back to Israel. Here we can see that God leads his children. Joseph knew that his family uh, were not, no more safer now than they were before Herod died because his son was just as evil, just as deplorable as Herod himself was. It's likely that they were heading back to Jerusalem when they heard that Herod's son was now upon the throne. Joseph and Mary prayed. They waited. They sought directions to where to go. Common sense would have told them to be careful. Faith told them to wait. But in due time, God gave a dream uh, to, Jake, uh, to Joseph and took his family back to Nazareth, which was their home earlier in the text. God gave him that dream. Even this fulfilled prophecy. Matthew points out the very detail of the life of Jesus said, uh, that, uh, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets. Not just one prophet spoke about where Jesus would be born, where he would go, what would happen, but the prophets, the prophets. It's amazing to me that the only, one of the things about the word of God and about Christianity is this. Christianity is the only religion to my knowledge that has prophecy in it. All the other religions have history, maybe promises, laws and threats, but only our God knows the future and he's not ashamed to write it down so that we can know this is his word. It was not just a prophet spoke about Jesus' birth. The prophet spoke. These were men, some cases never knew each other. They, didn't, they were not raised in the same generation. They lived in different parts of the world. They live at a different time. Can you imagine 1,500 years, 1,600 years, it took the Bible to be written. And these men didn't even see each other, yet they talked about the same thing and didn't even know what the other had written until it was all compiled together. And yet there are no contradictions. We serve a God that can lead, a God that can guide, and a God that can direct. The Bible also said, uh, and, 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 uh, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Again, in many Old Testament prophecies, the humble, lowly life of Jesus is mentioned only. And this may be one of the things that Matthew had in mind. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? A lowly, isolated town that nobody would have anything to do with. And yet Jesus Christ didn't go to the palace. He didn't go downtown Jerusalem to live. He didn't go to the Ivy League. But he was birthed and they moved to Nazareth, a place that was the scum of Israel, and learned to trade in the carpenter shop, which could have been a stonemason, by the way. If you go to Israel, trees are hard to find. Rocks are everywhere. You think you're on the backside of the moon. So he could have very well been a stonemason. The term Nazarene was applied to Jesus and his followers. And he was often called Jesus of Nazareth. Please understand 
that a Nazarite and being from Nazareth are two different things. They would take a Nazarite vow, had nothing to do with Nazareth. Please understand that. A Nazarite and Nazarene are nothing alike. He was from Nazareth. Matthew, being led of the Holy Spirit, saw a spiritual connection between the name Nazareth and the Hebrew Nesar, which means a branch or a shoot. Several prophets apply this title to Jesus, Jeremiah, and the list goes on and on and on. Jesus grew up in Nazareth. He was identified with the city. In fact, his enemies thought he was born there because they said he'd come from Galilee. Had they looked at the temple records, they'd have found out that he was born in Bethlehem. Who ever heard of a king coming out of a little humble village called Nazareth? Everything that Jesus did, he did with humility. He did with utter dependence upon the Heavenly Father. He said, I do nothing except what the Father tells me. If I can learn anything from Jesus, it's be humble. Walk with your God. Listen to your God. He will lead, he'll guide, he'll direct. And what he does, he'll always do it with perfection. The humility of the king is certainly something to admire and to be emanated. In these two chapters of Matthew, we see the heredity of the king, we see the homage of the king, we see hostility against the king, and we see the humility of our king. And I just simply say, what a king we really have. His name is Jesus, the king of all kings, the Lord of all lords. 